reflection. What can I do better? How do I improve on that? You can then go forward. A full stop, if you think of it in reading a sentence, you stop. There's no nothing after that. Whereas a comma just says, take a breath. You see yourself as a victim. That's not fair. That's not right. You did this to me. I feel cheated. If you have high levels of self-efficacy, you go, this is on me. What can I do? Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. This one you're going to love. I promise you, you're going to love. Professor Damien Hughes is a professor of organizational psychology and change, an international speaker and a best-selling author. He combines his practical and academic background within sport, organizational development, and change psychology to help organizations and teams create a high-performing culture. He's written eight books, yeah, eight. <laughs> eight books, that's crazy, eight books about the psychology of high performance, teams, culture, leaders, and change. And he draws on cutting edge research to explain how we can all learn the secrets of high performance. Damien has served as a member of the coaching team for England's Rugby League, Scotland's Rugby Union, and a wide range of international and national sporting teams. He's also the co-host of the really successful high performance podcast, an acclaimed series of interviews with elite performers from business, sports, and the arts exploring the psychology behind sustained high performance. So there are few people who are better placed than Damien to teach us the psychology of a winning mindset, creating high performance habits and becoming the best possible you and sustaining success. I said it at the top of this show. I'm going to tell you right now, you do not want to miss this. Thanks for tuning in. Let's cue the music. Well, Damien, thank you for coming to join us on the podcast today. And look, I've wanted to get you on the show for a while because I just think you think a little bit different to other people. And I've noticed when people ask you questions about uh, teams, performance, psychology, um, getting the best out of yourself, you give really detailed answers. And that comes from my understanding of the amount of research that you've done over the years into all of the successful teams and even businesses that, uh, that exist out there. Now, I've got a million questions to ask you today. And, uh, and, and some of them you're going to be, oh, I've, I've answered that one before. But that's please for the benefit of the audience that, that there's some people that have asked me to ask you some questions. So please allow that. But first of all, you started off as a kid from Manchester who's... Dad was a, I think your dad was a boxing trainer. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. As this young kid that was around the kind of inner cities and around people where discipline was the thing in boxing, wasn't it? Discipline, you know, discipline and dedication and, and focus. What kind of an upbringing was that? Was that like for you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, I said to you off air, it was a real privilege and an honor to be asked. And I mean it. And I want to repeat that on air. So thank you for the kind invite. Um, and thanks for the kind um, opening question. Uh, so, yeah, my background is probably a bit eclectic, I suppose. That uh, I often use the line to people that I grew up in a boxing gym, which is true because uh, my dad was a boxing coach um, and he'd founded a boxing gym long before uh, myself or my siblings were born. Now, if anyone's listening to this that's got sort of like an image in their head of a sort of in, um, a traditional boxing gym in the States or in the UK, they probably see it in sort of like some gritty inner city area. And that was certainly the case where where I was brought up. So 
there's no badge of honour in this, but the area was categorised a number of years ago as being one of the third poorest in Europe. Um, and that gives the reason I mention that is that gives a good indication of the kind of social issues that uh, blighted the community. So like uh, unemployment, gang culture, uh, drug culture, some of the crime and things like that. But the boxing gym that my dad had founded um, was almost like an oasis in the middle of some of these difficult uh, circumstances. So um, it was seen as a place where you could go to, where you could be seen, you'd be heard, and you'd be respected. But in return for that, there was a demand that if you came into that environment, there was a certain level of respect and discipline that you had to do and you had to give. So a really simple example to explain it, Spencer, is that uh, you weren't allowed to swear within that boxing gym. You weren't allowed to come in there and use profane or bad language. And it wasn't a moral judgment that was being applied. It was a message that discipline counted. So if you couldn't come into that environment and use anything other than F-words or C-bombs, that showed a lack of discipline. And in a boxing ring, a lack of discipline was going to cost you uh, dearly. So... There was factors like that that were really important in terms of you always had to shake each other's hand. So regardless of whether you had Mm. an issue or whether there was um, any sort of kind of uh, bubbling rivalry going on, there was always a level of respect that you had to look each other in the hand, shake, shake, uh, shake the hand and say hello in those environments and things like that. Now, it's only as I've got older that uh, when I went down the academic route, um, I remember one of my lecturers using a phrase that said, we don't do research, we do me-search, where we often try and make sense of our own lives. And again, it's like that old uh, Kierkegaard quote that life only makes sense when you look backwards, but you've just got to live it forward. And I think as I've gone forward in my life and I look backwards, I start to see how powerful that those formative years were, especially in terms of shaping the work that I do, which is very much around shaping cultures, creating high-performing teams and cultures. And so much of it was was being taught to me as a young boy within that boxing gym. Now, t- tell me about your relationship with your dad. Yeah. What kind, of a, what kind of a man was he? Because I can imagine the stereotypical boxing gym kind of guy, kind of grey sweatpants, kind of in their small office out the back, um, tough, tough but kind, uh, yeah. put his arms around kids when he could he could see they come from a challenging background or they, they might have had a tough time at home. But what, what was it like, you know, being the son of that man? Yeah, so, I, I mean, it's quite a moving question, really, because my, my dad passed away at the end of January. Um, so... Um, so to talk about him feels like a real privilege to honour his memory. Um, he was an incredible man. I mean, his own story was uh, was incredible. So um, he came from, uh, he was an illegitimate child um, and he was born in, in a Catholic post-war Manchester. Now, the reason I mention that fact is that being an illegitimate child in that sort of Catholic community always made him a bit of an outsider. There was a real stigma attached to it. So um, he pursued boxing himself, but because he never had a father figure, he found himself, it's a sport that um, will take advantage of people when they're vulnerable in many ways. And that's what happened to him, that he got himself badly hurt. He was overmatched. But those two factors actually shaped his own life. So um, he became a father figure 
to thousands of other people within the community. So one of his uh, one of his drivers was um, to treat people with the respect and the kindness and the sense of belonging that he'd never had in his own background. And the irony was he went into the sport that had caused him a lot of pain and hurt himself and tried to take those same principles within to that sport. So he was in, he was incredible that, um, so he, he, I mean, he was an illiterate as well. So when he'd left school, he, or he, for the little bit of schooling he had, he couldn't read or write, but he, he, sell, he taught himself to read or write and became an author that wrote, wrote a number of books that he used to raise funds for the boxing club that he grew up in. Um, he was he, he trained guys that went on to win Olympic medals and to become world champions, and he taught himself how to do that. So I was around somebody that had that can-do attitude that they weren't a victim of their circumstances. They were somebody that still took real agency over what life had dealt with them and worked out how could they be the best that they could. And I think what always intrigued me and the lessons that I got from my dad, Spencer, was that the way I phrase it now is it was the work that's done in the shadows always reveals itself in the in the light. So he was... He, he was humble, but he was ferocious in his work appetite. He was uh, ferocious in terms of his, his his attention to detail. He was ferocious in the fact that he always wanted us to behave with decency and humility and kindness towards others, and he'd seize on it if we didn't. So, I'll give you a really uh, oh, I'll give you a couple of neat stories about him. But the one that really resonated for me was that when I was um, so I so I boxed. So he wanted me and my brothers to learn how to box. Um, and when I was about thirteen, I was in the I was in the boxing ring uh, with a guy that very quickly emerged that I was better than him. Now in my dad's gym, the rule in a situation like that was that you do, that you take a, that you take the opportunity there to coach the guy that you might be better in. So you so you're teaching yourself by teaching somebody else. This is how you slip a punch. This is where you should be moving. So an opportunity like that was seen as a coaching opportunity. But I was a 13-year-old mm-hmm. idiot and uh, didn't take that opportunity. And <laughs> I instead uh, abused the, the power dynamic in that situation. So I took advantage of the guy I was in a ring with. And I mean, I'm trying to explain it in a, in a decent way, but in very blunt terms, I behaved like a bit of a bully. And uh, I, I, I took advantage of it. And um, as I was getting out of the ring after the sparring session, I was feeling pretty pleased with myself. And my dad came over and just said, where are you going? I said, oh, I've finished training. He said, oh, you haven't. He said, that really wasn't a workout. Stay in the ring for a bit longer. And what he did was he put a uh, far more experienced boxer in the ring with me. And he made, made us do three rounds together. And for the next nine minutes, I endured what I'd still describe as one of the greatest humiliations of my life, that... This guy just made me look like didn't physically hurt me, but just taught me a lesson like uh, and uh, about humility and kindness and decency, but did it in a way that made me look incredibly stupid while a ho- the whole gym and my peers and people I grew up with stood and enjoyed watching me get served that slice of humble pie. And as I got out of the ring, I remember like I was trying my best to hold back tears, and my dad came over and said, "How are you feeling?" And I, and I couldn't say anything because I, I thought if I speak, I'll cry. And my dad just said to me quietly, he said, uh, how you feel now is exactly what you did to that 
other boy 10 minutes ago. And his point was, he said, don't ever, ever bully anybody again. Now, I'm telling that story 30, 35 years later, and it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. But they're the kind of experiences that that are incredibly formative, that like if, if I'm ever tempted now to sort of abuse a power dynamic in any context, the first image that flashes into my head, my emotional brain puts that image of feeling of those feelings right in front of my eyes. And it very quickly sort of grounds you and says, just know your place. Don't be like, don't be a dick in so many ways. And so I just feel so privileged that I had the opportunity to grow up in that environment and privileged to have a, a father as special as I had. It sounds like quite a man. Yeah, he was. I mean, another story that gives that gives some kind of testimony to him was that um, uh, about four years ago, Manchester Council chose to name a road uh, in honour of him uh, because of the impact that it had in such a poor, in a poor blighted area of Manchester. And um, on the day of the announcement um, or the unveiling of the road name, I'd, I'd estimate there was about 300 people turned up to come and just pay tribute to it. And I remember being with my brothers and looking around and we we tried to work it out. And I think a conservative estimate, 80% of the people that showed up that day had never set foot in a boxing ring. And the reason I mention that is that people wanted to come because although it was a boxing gym he ran, it was actually a community hub. So you didn't need to step into a boxing ring to come and be a member there. You could still come as a and find sanctuary from the challenges of life outside and you'd still be treated with respect and decency and uh, consideration. And that they made up the vast majority of the people that came along. And what a lot of them spoke about was how that like my dad and the and the culture it shaped had had such a seminal impact on them as people as partners as parents and as profession in a wide range of other professions that they'd done so i was lucky enough to almost see the mechanics that went in behind it which is why i i feel in many ways that the nature of the work i do is almost like passing that legacy on that the legacy of the great work that i had that if you'll forgive the pun, a ringside seat to observe. I feel that if you can help people understand how they can do similar in their own places, whether that's in sort of an organisation, a workplace, or whether it's in a sports team, or whether it's uh, in a sort of social setting, if you can sort of show how culture can be a competitive advantage, that's how, uh, I mean, that's a very big driver for me in the nature of the work that I do. You studied, you're a professor, academia clearly was something that, that you leaned into at an early age. Well, not really. And- so again, like, sorry to interrupt you, but I I actually struggled with academia quite early on. So uh, I, I, I was fortunate enough, I got a scholarship to uh, to a school. So I had a natural aptitude and my dad was keen to push me down the route of going down academia rather than feeling that like physical work, especially using my fist, was important. Uh, but so, but from the background I was from, I went to a school where I didn't know anybody. So I went to a big school where I was the only kid um, that I knew that was going there. And I felt like a fish out of water, if I'm honest, Spencer, that I, I really struggled. And um, for the first three years, the only way I knew how to do it was 
to fall back on some of those instincts that I demonstrated when I was in that boxing ring and took advantage. So um, I'd, I'd, I'd get myself in lots of scrapes. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd sort of, if any, I felt if anyone wronged me, I was quick with my fists. And uh, what happened for me was that I got expelled eventually, the school that were sort of giving me a scholarship to go there. Just got fed up with what they saw as me sort of not being grateful or, or being um, a little bit disingenuous. So they, they expelled me. And uh, I remember sort of the day that I got expelled, knowing what the reaction was going to be at home, that my mum and dad were going to be crestfallen. And um, what I was incredibly blessed by was that, and this image didn't fit, I was an altar boy at the local Catholic church at the same time as being this tear away and a, a teacher from my school had been in and seen me on the altar about six months before and I knew he couldn't compute the two uh, images he had this guy that was looking holier than now on the altar and yet coming into school and would uh, be throwing my fists around at the first sign of feeling aggrieved <laughs> and uh, on the night I got expelled this teacher a man called Bernard Council turned up to see my mum and dad and when he got speaking to them, I think he sensed that they were good people and we, I was from a good family. And um, they saw how devastated I was. And this man went back to school and spoke up for me and persuaded the school to rescind it or to downgrade it to a suspension uh, on the understanding that I was going to book my ideas up. So it took me quite a while to sort of get into the world of education or or academia. And I've never felt particularly intelligent. What I felt is that I've I've pursued interests and sort of worked really hard at trying to learn things that really intrigue me. But I, I I'm not a natural academic, if that makes sense. Is the point I suppose I'm trying to make? And that would give lots of hope to people out there that that struggle with that as well, because typically, you know, somebody becomes a I don't know, they get a degree, they get a master's, they go on to become a professor. That's usually, you know, people are pigeonholed, aren't they? It's just that, uh, you know, you must be good at studying yeah. if you can move into that category. You know, you're clearly good at studying, boy, type <laughs> of thing. So you can move into that area. So for you, you, you not to naturally fit into there, but working hard to get somewhere from it um, says a lot about your character and obviously a lot about what you were actually deeply interested in. Yeah. Because I think a lot, a lot of people kind of like move through different parts of study even even in their, in their working lives as well doing something and kind of having to be interested or having to be committed to something that it really doesn't it doesn't serve their soul or serve their heart so clearly this was an area for you that was just something that you were fascinated by yeah it was so i, I mean that's a really astute point that you're making spencer i think that i that i i was intrigued at it from a really young age because i I would see that work in the shadows, that phrase that I used earlier. So I'd see the stuff that would go on. So I've never been sort of impressed by the bright lights of a performance. So say, for example, in my in the world I grew up in, seeing the guys fighting for a world title was never the thing that really blindsided me because I was, I'd been fortunate enough to see, the say, the four months of a training camp that nobody would ever see, like they're having to get up early in the morning and do the road work. Um, I'd see the hours of studying an opponent, the 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 sort of weeks spent in the gym, sweating to get yourself to a physical state so you could execute a game plan. So all of that had always been 
the bit that had really got me excited and understood how do you do that better? How do you engage people to want to come on that journey with you? Was the bit that I uh, that had always intrigued me. And I also saw the loneliness of it for lots of leaders or coaches. I'd seen how lonely and how thankless and how demanding the task was. And again, another thing that inspired me was how do you be a friend to them? How do you sort of be that that support or that coach for the coaches that are working under that kind of intense scrutiny and pressure? So they were the two things. And then I almost, based on that instinct, it was how do I find a way of complementing what really intrigues me to be able to put in place the the framework or the tools or learn the messages that can aid them. So there was a real sense of purpose behind what uh, about the uh, the choices that I'd made. Um, and I and but I think that's a really astute point you're making. That I think for anyone listening to this, it's about finding the thing that that you are passionate about, the thing where you feel you can make a difference. You know, like we were talking off air before about the uh, the program that you're recording at the moment, and I was asking you, what have you learned? And it's the fact that you can almost tell the story of, of hope in many ways. You're going into fairly bleak situations, but you're taking away from that a message of hope and survival. Um, and I think whenever you hear anyone that's gone on and achieved anything significant or something that, or somebody that they would say is happy with their choices, it's often a sense of purpose that that that, that, that lies at the heart of it. Mm, it's interesting you say that. You know, it takes me back to thinking about what motiv- motivated me in 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 life. Yeah, was you know, parents got divorced when I was young. Dad went bankrupt. School dinners, free school dinners, all that usual stuff, and. I was bullied quite badly at school right. and I know the kids' names to this very day, Justin Zimmerman and Paul Fowler, then Paul Fowler, red hair, Justin, blonde hair, never forget yep. them. Um, and for the best part of what well, I left school at 16. So the best part of 30 years after that, they, they, they actually were my motivation. Right. So they, they, I, I had something to prove to them in some way, somehow, continually, yeah. all the way through. And people say, where do you get your drive from? Is, and it, it would always lean back to them. But it also leans into, and I think this is why this, this whole TV show matters to me, because I don't like people being treated badly. Yep. And, and, and I, find it, I find it something really, really difficult to process. And so it takes me to a place where I want, I want to kind of defend them or I want, I want to fight for them, or I want to champion them, or I want to protect them, maybe all of those things in a small way. And all because of that, what happened to me when I was at school as a kid, that, that's kind of come through my life. And whilst I'm not trying to prove anything to the bullies anymore, I don't think anyone should be treated badly. And I had a really difficult dilemma, actually, with one of my daughters, because my eldest is tough as old boots. You know, you as much as look at her the wrong way, she'll have you up against the wall. And how old she spends? She's 22 now, just just finishing university. And my youngest is 19. She's at uni now. But she was bullied from about five or six years old. Okay, picked on, we call it, in the early days. And then it got to bullying. And my wife at the time wanted to speak to the school. And I was in this kind of dilemma where does she, does does be, can be, could she turn bullying into something that could really help her perform? Yeah. In the future, could she use it as the pain was so great that it made her went, I'll show you. And 
So I was kind of, I was stuck between this, wanting to protect her because she's my little girl, yeah. okay? But also going, mm, actually, this might be good for her after, after my experience because if she gets out of it what I got out of it, maybe it was worth the pain. Yeah, that's a really, that, I mean, that's a fascinating point that there was a study done on this by the, um, the British Olympic Association a few years ago. Did a, they published a paper called Trauma to Triumph. And what they were asking was that what they found is that an awful or a high percentage of, of British Olympians had endured some kind of trauma in their early years. Now, whether that's a trauma of a, a parent's divorcing or a death or even like what I think they call it small T trauma in terms of bullying or unkindness at school is still mm-hmm. a trauma. But if it's if the lessons are unpicked in the right way so it doesn't become uh, encoded as some kind of victim mentality or you know, shit always happens to me. But instead you go, you know what? I survived that. And this is what I learned about resilience and toughness and standing on my own two feet. They found that there was a high percentage of people that went on to achieve um, success within that sort of Olympic domain had gone through it. So I think what you, I think the questions that you were asking about your daughter are really, are really astute and opposite. When we think about things in business, we see, I don't know, let's take actors when they, they start becoming, whether it's Hollywood, wherever it is, they go for lots of auditions and they, ha- they face a lot of rejection and some give up. Uh, and in business, you know, most people that start a business end up failing because they have to deal with lots of rejection and they give up. And I'm sure when you're a young, gifted sports person, you've got to fight your way into being selected, whether that's into the team or into the squad or even to get yourself a chance. And you're going to face pushback. Yeah. So you've got to kind of raise your game. You've got to deliver your best each and every time or what most people do, sadly, is actually give up, don't they? They they, they that's what happens to most people in society, but the ones that just keep going get there. When I, when I first started in business, I was a salesperson. Right. Well, I wasn't. I was taught to be a salesperson. And my boss on the first day, my, my, my job, I was 18 years old, and it was to go knocking on doors in London and go make some cold calls. Wow. And so, and so this, this was the job. I had to go and collect 100 compliment slips from 100 companies I used to have to come back at lunchtime. I could get a coffee and a sandwich from the petrol station, then to the office, and I used to have to make 100 cold calls from those compliment slips. Now, my boss said to me on the first day, after we'd had our week's training and whatnot, he said, what I want you to do now is you're going to get on the phone, and I want you to find 100 people to tell you no. All right? So you're going to make 100 calls, go and get 100 no's for me. And I was like, is he, is he being serious? But it, it, I did this old. So every person I phoned up, they went, no, there was some swore at me, whatever it might be. No, no, no. Went through the afternoon, got all these no's, went to see the boss at 5.30. I said, I've got those hundred no's. He went, epic. He jumped out of his chair, gave me a high five. He said, I'll see you tomorrow. And so I went home going, oh, cool. Next day, he said the same thing. Get me a hundred no's. Don't worry about anything. Just get me a hundred no's. I was like, okay. So did it again, got another high five. Then the next day he said to me, what I want you to do today is I only want you to get 99 no's. So just get 99, go find 99 no's. And I want you to find one yes, all right? So you're going to need to get 99 no's before you get a yes. So just beware, okay? That's what you're going to need to do. And so he was teaching me, obviously, you know what he was teaching me, but for the benefit of the audience, he was teaching me to understand that rejection was part of success. And he was doing it in a very practical sense, which the way that I learn, it needs to be practical. I I don't learn theoretically. I need to be practically there. And so... Over the course of a few weeks, I was taught 
that I could not succeed. Success was impossible unless you sucked in, pursued, searched, went chasing after rejection to start with. And so rejection felt like nothing to me. Rejection felt like success. Rejection felt like, well, you need, you need rejection. Brilliant. You know, if I was standing in the pub with my pint of snake bite, <laughs> I'd be standing there going, no, 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 you got, you know, I need my 99 no's, you know. <laughs> what, are you mad? Of course you need 99 no's. And obviously other guys in the pub would be looking at me like I'm an idiot. But that, <laughs> that, that whole thing about, you know, about being, being successful in sports, in business or whatever it is, and we're going to come on to this because you're a master at this subject matter. But for me, it's like, if you can teach people to pursue rejection and normalize rejection in a really, really practical, simple, yes, time-consuming initially way, then you can help them find success. And so here, here's how the numbers work before I pass over to you. It was 99 no's to one yes, so one in 100, yeah? Then it went 98 to two yeses. Well, that went from, it didn't go from 99 to one it, to 99 to two, oh, sorry, 98 to yeah. two. It went, from 99 to one to 49 to one. Brilliant, okay. And then it went and they said, right, I want you to get 96 no's, I want you to get four yeses. Well, that actually was one in 25. And so it was teaching me to understand that actually getting 96 no's and four yeses is really good because it's one in 25. And slowly as my skills developed and my understanding that rejection was important, my skills developed and I got better and better and better. It got down to, nine no's and one yes so one in ten brilliant one in ten that was a great statistic back those days when it was cold yeah, calling yeah. knocking on doors selling the worst things you could sell so talk to me about the experiences that you've had in in the in the, in, in the work you've done with the national teams that you work with but also in the exposure you've had to various businesses along the way in understanding how rejection impacts people and the tools that people can use to help get themselves over the initial pain that that causes. Sure. Well, first of, all, first of all, I love that story. I think what a brilliant first boss you were lucky enough to have, Spencer, because that's a masterclass in terms of what what intellectually we might know, but actually, as you say, he's teaching you psych- psychologically and emotionally. You need to go through this learning experience. I, the, the, as you were saying it there, I, I was reminded of a phrase that I was given years ago where, where somebody said to me, success is a common, not a full, uh, failure is a common, not a full stop. And the reason that resonates with me is because a full stop, if you think of it in reading a sentence, you stop. There's no nothing after that. Whereas a comma just says, take a breath. Take a breath and then we'll go on to the rest of the sentence. And I think learning just to take a breath is where if you if you if you can then combine that with reflection, what can I do better? How do I improve on that? You can then go forward smarter for it. So the, that doesn't necessarily come from experience. I think it comes from experience plus reflection. So I'm sure you're like me. You know lots of really smart young people, but I bet you also know lots of stupid old people as well. And that's a, a good example where just because your like, age doesn't confer wisdom on you, age plus mm-hmm. reflection can confer wisdom if you're prepared to look at these failures in a forensic way to go, how do I do better next time? What do I learn from that? So I think the first thing is to is what your boss taught you is about reframing it. So don't see it as a full stop, see it as a comma that, and then you move on to the 
98th rejection, then you move on to the 97th and you and you work down that list. So I think that's the first thing of just reframing it in a really effective way. I think another thing as well is that in organizations and teams, one of the things that I've seen um, done there is I've seen teams have like cock-up clubs or mistake clubs where they celebrate the mistakes, like the high five example that your boss was given again, that you celebrate it rather than demonize people or berate them for it. I remember talking to um, one rugby coach once I worked with the team where I persuaded him to give his wingers. Uh, so when they did the, st- the statistical review, they look at how many yards you've run or how many tackles you've made and things like that. And for two of his players, I said, give them five mistakes a half. Because on the or- on the law of averages, they need to make five mistakes before they'll make one significant breakthrough in their position. So if you can almost tell them, I expect these mistakes and these mistakes, you've almost got a target to make the five mistakes. Again, I was reminded of your boss saying to you, well, that's fine. We expect that. So you're going to drop the ball. You're going to get tackled. You're going to run out of, uh, run into touch. And they're all part of what we've anticipated. So I think anticipating it and celebrating it can be really good. And then another example I've learned is, It's a two-word phrase that I'm sure lots of your listeners are familiar with. The phrase is psychological safety in teams. So psychological safety is a phrase that was coined by an organizational psychologist called Amy Edmondson back in the early 1990s. So she was doing a PhD at the time, Spencer, where she was looking at the best performing medical trusts and hospitals in the Boston seaboard area. And what she was finding didn't add up statistically. So she was going into what you'd regard as the best performing hospitals where recovery rates were highest and efficiencies were at their best. But she was finding that they had the highest number of near misses or or reported incidents or effectively mistakes that were being made. And yet when she was going into hospitals that had sort of the worst KPIs and statistics, they had the lowest number of kit near misses and mistakes that are being made. Now, on the surface, that doesn't make sense. How can the best performing hospitals be making more mistakes than the worst performing? So that was what intrigued her to go and dig a little bit deeper. And what she found was that in the best performing hospitals, mistakes were being made, but people felt safe enough to put their hand up and say, I just made an error there. I just messed up. I just, I, I did the equivalent of getting my, the, uh, a no that your boss would be teaching. And rather than being demonized for that, they felt safe enough, psychologically safe within that culture, that people would see it as a comma, not a full stop, learn from it, and will avoid the mistake next time. What was happening in worst performing hospitals is people didn't feel safe enough to put their hands up and admit a mistake. So what they'd do is they'd bury it or pretend it hadn't happened or point the finger of blame at somebody else or see if there was any way they could palm it off elsewhere. So no learning was ever happening. A mistake in those cultures was literally a full stop and not a comma. So this idea of psychological safety has started to sort of catch on a lot in the last 10 or 15 years, inspired by Amy Edmondson. And you and then Google did a study um, called Project Aristotle, where they looked at what are the features of high-performing teams. And they found no common ground or not a lot of overlap, except for that one area of psychological safety that every high-performing team or culture has to have an environment that you were lucky enough to get in your first job of, of mistakes being celebrated 
and recognized and rewarded and learned from rather than feeling demonized or feeling silly for having made them in the first place. Makes me, after you say that, it makes me, makes me think about how lucky I am to have experienced that because a lot of people haven't. And, and, and to get where I got, the part that that played in my life was way bigger than I ever gave it credit sure. for along the way. And it sounds way. to me like, as you're describing it, I mean, one, it shaped the success that you've had in your own life, but it also shapes what was obviously the questions you were applying to, to your second daughter of, well, it's the equivalent of her getting the 99 noses, maybe going through that horrible experience of feeling bullied. But what you were, what you were recognizing was actually this can be valuable if you, if the reflection of it is done and it's a wisdom that you can take with you into the rest of her life. So I just want to stop here and talk about the people that enabled this podcast to be possible. Organizations such as Smartcast, who are solving the problem of food security in the world, have supported this podcast because they believe in the mission that I'm on. When you understand the work that they do at trying to solve the problem with this massive population growth we've been having over the years and providing a way of bringing food safely to everybody, it really is something I admire. As well as Smartcasts, we're really lucky to have partnered with Arabian Business, where not only can you see our content on YouTube and listen to it on the podcast, but you can also see it on the Arabian Business channels. So big thanks to those guys for backing us, supporting us, and allowing us to share our content with a bigger and bigger audience. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. In the world of sports, we've seen a lot in recent times. So let's, let's, let's stick, with, stick with what's going yeah. on at the moment. We've seen a lot of stuff that can mess with people's heads going on recently. So we'll just, just highlight them. Let's take Abu Dhabi Lewis Hamilton um, as an example of what happened. Let's take... Um, uh, Roman Abramovich and the Chelsea squad and the manager. Um, we can obviously take Manchester United because that's constantly yeah. talked about. Um, but 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 maybe we can also also talk about what someone like Frank Lampard's going through right now with a team that should never be there. But then on the flip side, um, what must have happened at Newcastle for things to change there? Because before that happened, I think there was a statistic that said. A team in that position after Christmas has never has never not been relegated, or only once in history. As they, as they, but they've come flying out of that problem and are in a straight place now. So let's take one at a time. Let's talk yeah. Lewis Hamilton. Okay, you've got a guy. Uh, he's seven-time world champion, hugely successful. Clearly, you know he he leans into what happened to him as a kid about how he had a target on his back as a boy when he was racing, and the, their mum, dad had no money, and they were making ends meet. Gone on to achieve huge success, and then he's had something stolen from him. Yeah. How 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 do you how do you process that? Well, again, I mean, it's a really fascinating example, but what I think it shows is that I feel a lot of what I often talk about, um, you could describe it as uh, the application of common sense and you're trying to make it common practice. So there's nothing new in particular around it. So back in the um, 1950s, there was a, a psychologist called Al Albert Banjura that was at Stanford University, and he, he identified... 
a really significant factor of people having success uh, in their own lives. He called it self-efficacy. So if you have low self-efficacy, what that means is you're quick to point the finger of blame. You see yourself as a victim. That's not fair. That's not right. You did this to me. I feel cheated that you've stolen that from me. If you have high levels of self-efficacy, you go, this is on me. What can I do? I'm So, for example, if you were in the world of sales and, and you don't get the job that you apply for, low self-efficacy says, oh, they didn't like me. It was, it was, they were biased against me. It wasn't fair. The, the, the cards were weighted against me. If you've got high self-efficacy, you say, you know what? Maybe I wasn't good enough in that interview. Maybe my levels of preparation could have been better. Maybe I could have been more passionate and enthusiastic. So just in terms of the language that you use is an indication of it. And I suspect that someone like Lewis Hamilton, like, initially would have felt wounded by it. I'm sure he would. But then I'm sure that quite quickly he went into that high self-efficacy. What could I have done? Why did I leave that race right down to that that final lap to determine the success? Why, like, why did I even rely on it going down to a final race? What could I have done better? How could I have improved it earlier on in the season to make sure that the points difference was higher? And I suspect that his, that most of his reflections would have been what he could have done better rather than spending too much time feeling aggrieved or wronged by it because that doesn't serve anybody or anything. And I think the fact that Mercedes didn't uh, appeal against it if you, it was a really interesting example of how they moved on from it quite quickly. They didn't see themselves as being victims or having something stolen. They saw it as what could they have done better. And I suspect that we'll see that sort of reaction later on in the rest of the, or in the season that starts this weekend. I think we'll see that. I mean, there's a couple of really interesting uh, racing drivers that, that we've had, that I've had the good fortune enough to meet or some of the team bosses. So Toto Wolff, uh, Lewis Hamilton's boss himself, sat down with him. He was a guy that was very much focused on the process rather than the outcome. Have we done everything right ourselves? Let's focus on what we can do and what we've done right, rather than necessarily measure our success on the outcome of whether we win a title or not. So he gave us a really memorable interview on the High Performance Podcast, Spencer, where mm. yeah, I where listened he sat to down it. And he said when he first came into Mercedes, the very first thing he challenged was the dirty coffee cups that were in the reception area. And there was a day-old copy of the Daily Mail. And he said, you might sit there thinking, what does coffee cups and an old Daily Mail tell us. And he went, well, it's about standards. It's about attention to detail. And if one of our non-negotiable behaviours is that we pay attention to the small things that we can control, the reception area is just as important as the pit lane or, 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 or the car. So that's what makes me confident that I suspect Lewis Hamilton is in a culture where they wouldn't have spent a long time feeling like victims but they'd have spent an awful long time working out what they could have done better during the whole season to avoid it going down to that last lap. You know, I, I mean, I often say this to teams that I work with that when they complain about referees, I, a line I use with them is, you should be better than the worst referee in performance. So even if the referee is having a stinker, you should still focus on all the things that you can influence that mean that you will be better than even the worst decision that referee will make against you. But if you're relying on a referee's decision as to whether you're going to win or lose, 
maybe you haven't done enough yourself in your preparation that you're almost leaving it down to uh, the um, the the like the fate of whether that referee is having a good day or not. Mm, good point. Good point. And when you then look look forward at, at Chelsea after going through, I mean, this is yeah. unprecedented, isn't it? You know, for a team to go through something as dramatic as that, I think anyway, maybe, no, maybe not as dramatic, but in recent time anyway. So, you know, we, we, we can lean into some at Busby and the job that he did all those years ago after the terrible plane accident and stuff like that. But, what what does someone like Thomas Tuchel ha- have to do to galvanise those people, those players? That that whole business, really. It's not just about the players on the pitch; it's about the tea lady, the you know everybody else that's with it. How do you galvanise people? Is it kind of like a right? The chips are down, our backs are against the wall. How are we gonna are we gonna come out fighting, guys? Or are we gonna are we gonna curl up into a ball? What, what do you think? I think it's a brilliant question. I think in terms of what's happened, um, is it like politically, I think. What Tuchel will be talking about is that that famous phrase, control the controllables, because ultimately for him and his players, nothing has really changed in terms of like nobody from that playing group has left the squad. So politically, that's all going on outside of their world. But for them, they're, they're the same group that was still in place two weeks ago before all this happened. So I think Tuchel will be using this as a opportunity to circle the wagons a little bit to say, let's block out the noise because that the noise of what's happening with Abramovich is outside our control. So there's no point in us investing our time and energy to talk about that. Let's focus on what we can do. So it'll be, I think it'll be that sort of siege mentality that Alex Ferguson was so good at doing that everybody wants to see us fail, that we've got lots of reasons why we can fail, but let's go out there and have each other's back. Let's defend each other. Let's make sure that we do our job to the best that we can uh, to uh, to achieve our objectives. And I think stuff like what you mentioned about, I, I, like, I read a stat today that Chelsea have got a thousand members of staff and a lot of them will be um, on uh, salaries that are nowhere near what we assume the playing group are on. So I think they'll be using that that message to say, let's do it as a cause for them as well. Let's go. We're representing the tea lady. We're representing the stewards or the staff that in the club shop that have lost our job. We almost have a duty. So he'll be giving them that sense of mission of let's focus on what we can do, doing the best we can, have each other's backs, and we'll do it as a representative of those members of staff that have lost their jobs that are, are going to be severely affected. So I, I think that's how we'll be playing this internally at the moment it potentially if they come out the other side of this it potentially can be a game changer for them okay of course they're successful as it is but when you galvanize a group of people in adversity like that and they and they really do come together all of a sudden it becomes a massively family. yeah so we i'll give you a really good example of that that when we um when we interviewed like one of my favorite interviews of that we've done was with a guy called Sia Khaleesi, who's the uh, the captain of the South African Springboks, uh, the rugby union team. And he was appointed, so uh, he, he is a captain, but historically he was the first black captain in the, in the Springboks 130-year history. And he was appointed by Razia Rasmus when they were in some pretty dire circumstances. They would get, I think they'd lost something like 12 out of 30 test matches, the squad was seen in disarray and Khaleesi was appointed as the uh, as the captain of them. 
So, but he came in and said um, that he wanted to base his captaincy on a Zulu phrase called Ubuntu, which translates as I am because you are. So the point is that I can only be the person I am if you're being authentic and being the person you are. So that was the general uh, gist of it. So one of the messages that he did or one of the exercises to galvanize the group and show that this was a new era was he asked every member of the squad to bring in five pictures of the people closest to them that when they pulled the Springboks jersey on, that was who they represented. That was who they played for. So you could find out who are you in this Ubuntu philosophy. So all the players, as you'd expect, Spencer brought in pictures of like parents, partners, first coaches, children, things like that, except for one. One player called Makazola Mampimpi turned up and he brought five photos of himself on holiday. Now, Khaleesi thought that this guy was trying to subvert the process or make fun of it, but in the spirit of, I am because you are, give him his moment. And when Mampimpi stood up in front of the playing group, he revealed that he'd brought five photos of himself because he was an orphan, that he'd lost both his parents by the age of 10. He was responsible for a brother and sister and both of them had died by the age of 15 in an accident and because of illness. So the message that he gave to the Springbok team was, I don't have anybody. So in other words, you now become my family. And Khaleesi told us that the message in that team, the way that galvanized them was, he said, I would fight for a teammate, but I'd die for a member of my family. And suddenly this guy was standing in front of us saying, you are my family because I don't have anybody else. And he claims that that message galvanized them to come together to develop these strong bonds in their relationships that meant that when they found themselves in the World Cup final in Yokohama in Japan, there was no way they were ever going to lose. And they weren't going to lose because they had these relationships that had been built so strongly. If it's if it's channeled correctly, it can actually galvanize a group of people, bond them closer together, deepen those ties and strengthen it. If you come through that together... Yeah, you're right. It can be rocket. Uh, it can be rocket fuel. Oh man, that's just so powerful. Imagine that one thing can take a whole group of people. Because you can imagine, you can imagine being in that changing room, can't you? When he when he sits there, you could just that. That's just that 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 is yeah. really moving in that moment, and and no more words are need then needed. Are there's they? no gimmick. And the thing is, there's no gimmick involved in that. That's just somebody coming and making themselves really vulnerable in front of. 29 of their other colleagues that are saying, you know, this is me for like warts and all. Like, I think you'd either have to be a sociopath or an idiot to look at that and think, I'll make fun of you or I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll ridicule you in that. I think most people with a degree of empathy yeah. would go, I somehow now feel closer to you. And that's a good example of that earlier answer about psychological safety that you have to feel safe and you have to trust the people in that room to want to make yourself so vulnerable. But when you can get that, that's where the bonds uh, of the relationship go so much deeper than just the surface level. Amazing. I love that. Right, quickly, um, Everton. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, from what I understand, I think Everton uh, are, are a club where culturally they're a bit of a mess. So I think expecting a coach to come in and fix it uh, in in a short-term measure like like what Frank Lampard's been asked to do is nigh on impossible. So I, I think what they'll need to do with him there is allow him just to 
come in and apply the process to it. I think at the moment it'll be a, so it, so to explain it in more detail, what I'd like a nice way when you talk about a culture of a club. So too, like too often, Spencer, it's easy for people to say, oh, there's a bad culture at Everton. The culture is toxic and it doesn't actually mean a great deal. What's more helpful is to say, well, what type mm-hmm. of culture do they have? And what, and to answer that mm-hmm. question, there's research done by two guys from Stanford University called Baron and Hannon. They studied this over 25 years. And what they found is traditionally, you throw a group of people together, a culture will always emerge. It's the type of culture that's most interesting. And there's one of five different types you can get. So some organizations have a star culture where you just throw loads of money at it. Uh, you uh, invest in the best facilities you can, and you hope that all that talent comes together and delivers spectacular success. So think of somewhere like Real Madrid or Paris Saint-Germain for that. You can then have an autocratic culture, which is where you've got one powerful leader that sets a tone. So it's my way or the highway. So think of someone like Chelsea for the last 17 years under Abramovich with the higher and fire coaches. The third type of culture is a a bureaucracy where you've got policies, procedures, rules and regulations coming out of your ears. So change is slow and it's ponderous. The fourth type is an engineering culture. So you bring in people because they're technically skilled at a job. You don't worry about how they behave. It's more about can they do a job in, in, a, te- in, in a technical aspect. But then the fifth type of culture is a commitment culture. And what a commitment culture is built on is a really clear sense of purpose. This is our mission and a really clear set of behaviours. These are the rules of membership. Now, what the evidence says is, in this research, if you want high performance over a sustained period, commitment cultures are your best guarantee of achieving it. The others can wax and wane, but a commitment culture tends, on average, according to the Baron and Hannon research, tends to be about 22% more successful than those other types. Now, the reason I reference that is, if you think of somewhere like Everton, Everton are a mishmash of different cultures. They've got a few superstars. They've, uh, they've gone down the route of employing autocratic leaders. They've got a board where that's applying bureaucratic principles. So what you've got is a mishmash of different cultures that are fighting to be dominant. And that's where people then just use that shorthand of, you've got a toxic culture. So I think what Frank Lampard, and I've been lucky enough to meet Frank and interview him on this is, he buys into this idea of, of so much of the aspects of it being a commitment culture, having really clear standards of behaviour and a really clear sense of purpose or a vision of how he wants the team to play. So I think now that you've brought him in, you need to just allow him the time and space to go and implement that and be patient with it. So I accept that he'll have a firefighting job on his hands in the short term, but you don't judge him on the short-term results. You give him the patience to go in and put in place foundations that are going to help you be successful over the long term. So Alex Ferguson was brilliant at this. He had a great phrase that he said, we play for today, but we plan for tomorrow. So it was always that if you're patient with a leader like that, Ferguson claims that one of the key measures of his success was that he could plan in four-year cycles, whereas most managers could only plan in one-year cycles because you're always firefighting. Whereas when he could make a decision, say in year two, to get rid of a player, say Yap Stam or David Beckham, not because they weren't necessarily effective in year two, but he knew by year four 
he'd have to replace them anyway. So you might as well start the process of evolution rather than constantly being reactive. So I think that if Chelsea can, if Everton can get through this period of firefighting that they'll need to avoid relegation, then allow Lampard the space and time to plan in a longer cycle. I think that he'll put in place foundation stones that will allow them to thrive. I want to take it back to you now because I want to get some more questions answered. No, it's all right. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Can you, we, you, from all the stuff I, I, I watch, I read, I consume of yours, we're, we're always talking, or in the main, you're talking about yeah. stuff external to you, uh, situations that you've learned about, studies that you've done. And, and, and for me, the fact that, the fact that you, you have such an interest in this subject means that the fact that you don't talk a lot about your experiences in the same way means that that, that needs, <laughs> okay. I think we need more of that out in, in the public no, domain. So I hope you don't mind. But I've got 10 questions here, six of them mine, and four of them are from my audience okay. that I asked to ask questions. So I'm just going to go through them and I'll answer them the best way you see a fit. If you had to meet someone who was struggling to show up at their maximum potential, what would be your first step for getting them out okay, of Okay, that's rut? a great question. Um, I can summarize that in three simple words. Success leaves clues. So what I would do with anybody that was in a bit of a rut, the first question I'd say is, uh, let's, de- like, let's define what success looks like for you. So it might be, it might be the time you were happiest. It might be the time you, you hit your sales target at work. It might be the time when you just felt really good about yourself. It almost, that's for you to define the parameters of what success looks like. And once we've agreed on what the success is, I would then say, now let's do a proper review of it. Let's analyze it. So let's go back. What was happening in that period of time? What were you talking, who were you hanging around with? What were you reading? What were you doing? What were your habits? There's three reasons why I would ask those questions. First of all, confidence is built on evidence. So I'm not going to ask you to do something that you're not capable of. First of all, we're going to go and say, let's find the evidence of when you've already been successful. So what we're now going to do is try and do that more consistently, do do the behaviors and the traits that led you to be successful in the past. We're going to do more of it more consistently. So first of all, you should be confident in what we're talking about. Secondly, it's inclusive. So I'm inviting you into the conversation. I'm not trying to be some expert from outside your world making judgments. That's not my job. I'm going to, we're including you and I can maybe guide you with some of the questions I ask, but you're the one that's going to be in charge of that process. And then thirdly as well, who doesn't have an opinion on success? It's like that famous quote that, you know, uh, failure is a bastard, but success has got many fathers. So it's easy when we've gone wrong to go, oh, it wasn't me, it was that. And nobody wants to own it, but everybody goes, oh, well, I know why success happened. So I'm inviting you. So you will have something to contribute. So if I was working with anybody that was having a bit of a slump, that's the first place I'd start. Let's define success and let's do a proper analysis of it and we'll find the clues that will enable you to be successful in the future. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Okay. What has been the hardest setback for you and how did you approach wow. it? I've had, I've had so many. So it's almost like choosing them. Um, I think... Um, one that I had was that when um, I made a decision years ago that uh, uh, this is nearly 20 years ago that I thought I needed to get a proper job. So 
none of my family, as I explained my background, nobody had ever had sort of like a proper job in the yeah. corporate world. And when I was sort of leaving university, I said to my girlfriend at the time, she's my wife now, I said, I think I need to get a proper job. And and she was like, well, you're not really qualified to do anything in the real world in terms of, so I, it's <laughs> a so long story short, I applied for different jobs. Um, and I, um, <coughs> a company called Unilever were really good to take me on and employ me because I, I uh-huh. what I was saying to them was I, I look, my passion is about creating high performing cultures. So they said, well, we have a role for that in human resources. So I got a job in human resources, but I was so naive about how the corporate world worked because I just didn't, I like, as I say, my, my parents hadn't worked in it. I didn't have friends. I wasn't from a background where people did sort of corporate uh, 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 white collar yeah. jobs. So I thought that my background was that if a company didn't like you, they could just say to you, get out, like, and that was it. They'd pay you up for the end of the day and they'd kick you out. I didn't know that, like, employment law meant that that wasn't the case. So I, so I got a job and, uh, and, like, I promised them. I said, I'll work my socks off and I'll do the best I can. That was all I, was all I promised. So... Every couple of years, I get a call off my boss and he'd say, I want to see you tomorrow. And I'd go in. And I, and for the first year before I learned how this works, I thought he was going to sack me. So I went in anticipating that he was going to say, thanks for your time, but you need to leave. We've discovered that you don't know what you're doing. And instead, they promoted me. Instead, So I got a promotion. And then, so for seven years, I kept getting promoted until eventually I got promoted to my level of incompetence where I found myself not doing the kind of work I wanted to do, which was going out there, I found myself sat in boardrooms and meeting rooms talking about the kind of work I wanted to be doing, uh-huh. but not actually getting the chance to do it. But at the same time, Spencer, I'd almost, uh, I was getting paid a salary that I could never have imagined getting when I was a kid growing up. I had a company car and I had all the things that were making me soft and comfortable. And yet I was doing a job that I was thinking, I don't want to do this. This isn't where I should be spending my time. Uh-huh. And I, I, the way I phrase it was, I mentally resigned 18 months before I had the courage to follow through and actually submit a resignation. But that 18 months, mm-hmm. um, I remember being sat there thinking I was a fraud and being sort of a little bit ashamed of myself for not having the courage of my convictions or for being a bit of a sellout. And I remember one day I was in South Africa, I was in mm. Durban, and uh, I remember looking out of the window onto the Indian Ocean in this boardroom we were in. And uh, I remember thinking I'd do anything to be outside there and not sat in here because I, I knew I'd, I was in the wrong place for me. Like it was a great company, so I'm not speaking anything ill of them, but I knew that I wasn't in the mm. right place for me. And I remember we were debating margarine sales in the region right? And the dipped. And I remember when it came on the agenda thinking, there's not one part of me that gives a shit about this conversation. Like I, I, there's not one atom of my being that gives a shit. But as the conversation was like creeping death, as it was coming around to me, I was seeing like colleagues, like looking crestfallen and devastated and shaking their head in bemusement of it. And I remember thinking, what am I going to do when it comes to me? Am I going to have the courage of my conviction to say, I don't care really doesn't impact me, but I didn't. And I was, I, I sort of joined in with everybody else and pretending to be utterly devastated by it. And that was the evening that I eventually went, 
I'm not doing this for the next 30 years of my life. I'm not being a fraud. I feel like I'm betraying myself and where I'm from. So that was the catalyst for me to hand my resignation in. But I'd gone through about 18 months where I knew I should have done it. I just didn't have the courage to go through it. So that's my answer to that one. What did, what did, it, what did it feel Terrifying. like the day you put it in? I'll tell you what, in? and I'll tell you, like, this next bit doesn't reflect on me at all well, right? But I, but in, in the spirit of honesty <laughs> here, that, I, that when I was in that world, I was, um, I was a gobshite if that phrase translates. So I'd say things like, I'd have the company account, I'd say, it doesn't matter yeah. to me. It's nice to have it, but I don't care. The day that I resigned and the day they came to take it off me, right? I remember being stood there and I was disgusted at how upset I was. So I was disgusted with myself that I actually felt upset that this car I'd pretended not to care about. I now didn't have it. And that was the moment then I, I went, mate, you, like, you've lost your head. You've been lost for too long. If you're upset about that, that's a, a reflection of the person I don't want to be. And that was when it. So I forced yeah. myself to really go back and have a long look at myself and sort of come up with my own. So I, I, I use a phrase regularly on the on the podcast of non-negotiables. I came up with my own non-negotiables, and one of them was that mm. I'll never do a job just that I don't believe in, just because it pays well. You know, I wouldn't do a job that I can look at and think I can make a positive difference mm. here and I can enjoy it. And if mm. it doesn't fulfill one of those two criteria, mm. it's about having the courage of your convictions to remember that moment when they took the car off me and gone, you're a sellout. And that's not the sort of mm. person I wanted to be. Really interesting. So it leads on to the next question, actually, and may, cool. maybe not necessarily relating to this, but in your experience, when you think about quitting, what, what are your thoughts on quitting? Should people quit? Should they give up? Is it, do, do people give up too wow. easily, uh, do you think? Sometimes, yeah, I think. So, the, the, like, one of the things that I do when I go and work with sports teams is is sometimes it's you look at the whole culture, the whole environment, and one of the ones that I often say is, get those motivational quotes down off the walls. Because, like, one of the famous ones is, you know, winners never quit and quitters never win. And I always go, sometimes they do, though. Sometimes it's the right thing to do. So what message are you giving to people by putting quotes up? It's far more helpful to say these are the rules that they get. These are the behavioral rules that we expect from you rather than give those sort of bland motivational mm -hmm. quotes. So I think sometimes, yeah, if it's not a sense of purpose, it'll feel like a job. If you're not doing it because you're passionate or you care about it, it'll feel like a burden rather than a pleasure to do it. And I think if that then starts to eat, and that's not mm. to make any judgment. Lots of us have to do those kind of jobs where, where we feel obliged to do them. But I think if it takes away some of your peace, whether that's your, excuse me, your physical well-being or your mental well-being, or if you're sacrificing mm -hmm. other factors that are important to you, maybe family time or time that you spend doing things that you enjoy, maybe then there is a question of, can I find something better? Or more appropriate so it'll always be contextual so i'm not trying to give any hard and fast rules here spencer but i think let's get away from this culture of thinking that we have to somehow be resilient even in the face of intolerable circumstances sometimes it's like quitting even that word has got negative connotations but sometimes just choosing to take a different path rather than see it as quitting 
can be helpful for us. Hmm. I think your previous answer there about what you did quitting was the yeah, right exactly, thing to do. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's just a, such a good example, isn't it? It was yeah, the so right thing the, the, to do but, for your well, soul. That's where, if we reframe <laughs> it, so on one level, you could say, "Well, I quit the corporate world." Well, yes, I did. Or I could say, "I took a different path that made me happier." So you could view mm-hmm. it. It's the same incident, but you could view it in two very different ways. You could give it a negative connotation or you could give it a more helpful connotation. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think maybe reframing that term quitting and maybe seeing it as taking an alternative pathway can be more helpful for people and make it easier for them to to make that choice if they need to. Absolutely. I agree. Okay, so on the podcast, which is hugely successful, are there recurring themes that you see regarding high performance to the guests Um, you've had on? I mean, it's a really interesting question because – we wrote a book about about it uh, that came out um, in December last year where the idea was to see if we yeah. could find some common traits because everybody's – like, to give you an example, we've done 105 interviews with people from the world of sport, business, and the arts, and we always start with the first question of what is high performance to you? We've yet to have a consistent answer to that question yeah. of 105. Yeah, there's not been one really? answer where you go, oh, yeah, that's the same as – I, do you know what, though? I, th- I, I think people can't sometimes answer that, though. I listen to people answering it, and I think they're trying to they, – they, they, yeah. they know that question's coming, and some of them are – because they've watched the listen to the podcast, they're like, okay, I know that's coming, so I better make sure I've got an answer for it. And then, yeah. like, like Lando, for example, he was just <laughs> – yeah. mm, uh, it's um, – Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> do you the, agree the, with me? But even so, they might have listened to other episodes, and they've not taken somebody's definition and gone, oh, I love that. That one speaks to me. And I think – and I think that's the point that, that point. what that tells you is that there's no one definition. There's no one way of high performance. There's no, there's no sort of um, finish line that says, if you get here, you are a high performer. Everybody's got their own definitions for it. So like a really good example of this is that if you think like, if you take two of the best rugby players of all time, Johnny Wilkinson and Dan Carter, we've had both of them on. Now you could say they both mm-hmm. reached a similar point in their careers of being universally regarded as the best players in their position at, in their era, and yet Johnny Wilkinson described how he he derived at that place from from a place of fear and from struggle and sacrifice, and yet Dan Carter described arriving at that same place through a through a sense of enjoyment and passion and love for the sport. So they both got to the same destination. <laughs> without taking the same route there. So the reason I mentioned that is that uh, trying to then find some common characteristics of them wasn't particularly easy. But I think you can sum it up in three in three areas that all of them seem to invest time in understanding their route. The first one is the idea of mindset. So some of the stuff we've spoken about earlier on in our chat tonight, today, Spencer, like mm-hmm. taking responsibility not being not having that victim mentality of taking accountability coping under pressure being relentless these are all mental traits that they've learned ways of developing them the mm. second area that they focus on then is about behaviors high performance behaviors so the first thing is they find what they're good at they play to their strengths not not try to mitigate for their weaknesses so a really good example of that was when we interviewed Joe Malone the perfumier. So she spoke about how mm-hmm. she left school at 14 mm-hmm. years old with not a qualification to her name. She was a dyslexic. She was from a broken home. And she said not one teacher at that school knew 
that she was spending her evenings and weekends working in a beautician's, creating these fabulous concoctions. It was only when she left school did she find an environment where she could take this innate sense of smell that she had and make it a superpower. So she played to her strengths. And and then I think they also they all have non-negotiables, things that they won't compromise on. And then they're consistent in applying them. So it's about success is often about doing the simple thing consistently well for a long period of time. So I think those behaviors are consistent, are traits. And then the third area is surrounding yourself with the right people. When, so the idea of high-performing teams. Tell me, you've oh, had Nims yeah. die on the show. I've had him on the show too. And when Did I you? climbed Mount Elbrus last year, I bumped <laughs> into him on the mountain too. Yeah, couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah. you know what you're doing. <laughs> I'll follow you. Yeah. <laughs> literally walked into each other. <laughs> but, okay, you, you, could, you could argue that what he yeah. achieved on those 14 peaks is probably... You could argue, I'll say that again, that that's probably at the very peak of the yeah. highest of the highest of performance, physically, mentally. Um, I wonder how someone like Nims compares himself to yeah. a Johnny Wilkinson, for example, whether, whether he... He because he you know he you know he tells a story about how he's five foot blooming four and he is for five foot four. I've got a photo with him. Um he, he and he's tiny joining the the special boat services. He's with six foot four guys with blue eyes and blonde hair. He doesn't even understand the humor of these guys and he's having to learn about the culture. But that he, he performed at such such yeah. an extreme and dangerous level. How he interprets Johnny Wilkinson's success, whether he looks at that and goes, That's high performance, or whether he says you can't beat me or you can't get close. I to don't think, I, I, do you know? I think what I've seen a lot of these guys do is they don't engage in comparison culture. So they don't look at Johnny Wilkinson and go, you're better than me or worse okay. than me. I think if they look at them, they look at what can I learn from them without feeling inferior or diminished by them. So, so like when we spoke to Nims, he had this great, okay. he had this great phrase that I've, I, I've used it so often where he said, your ability to be world-class at anything depends on how long you're willing to be shit at it for. And it was like, that's amazing because that shows you how it goes back to that learner's mindset. You're always open to new ideas and you'll try things, you'll fail, you'll reflect, you'll try again and you'll go back smarter. So I often think that guys like him, I'm not looking at Johnny Wilkinson and going, he's better than me, but you might be saying, how did he cope in that situation better than what I have done and what can I learn from him, mm. but without diminishing his own achievements. And I think mm. that's a consistent, I think that is a consistent trait from, from all of them that they're open to learning from other people without necessarily feeling a need to compare themselves. So, so does that level of success mean that along the way they learn to manage they either had their ego kicked out of them or they learned to manage their egos or they were trained to understand their ego, yeah, their ego was going to damage I, and, their and, progress and again i don't think there's one with one way maybe some like some of it was the, they were knocked out of this idea of being self-aggrandizing maybe some of it was they just realized that it wasn't helpful or maybe from a child they these kind of messages had been reinforced into them so i think again that's where everybody's got their own unique journey their own unique thumbprint of how they've got there but i definitely think that i'll give you a really simple example of it that we interviewed dylan hartley who he was just months after he'd retired from being the england rugby union mm. captain 
Now, when we spoke to him about his career as a rugby player, he was eloquent, he was smart, and he'd, 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 and he'd go into real detail. And then I asked him, I said, he'd just become a father for a second time. And I said, how are you taking the, How are you going to take these lessons that you've learned in your rugby career and apply them to, to parenthood? And the immediate uh-huh. response he gave us, Spencer, was, I don't know, I've never mm-hmm. been a dad before. Now, you could say, well, what does that tell you? But what it showed you is, as soon as he went outside his, his, his realm of knowledge, he adopted the beginner's mindset again. So he wasn't then, like I'm sure you've met lots of people, like mm-hmm. I have, that say like they've been successful in one domain of their life, say they've made a lot of money in business. They then make pronouncements about politics or about sport or about every other area of their life with the same confidence that they might have done about their area of business expertise. Mm. And you go, well, hang on a minute. Just because you're an expert there yeah. doesn't make you an expert in every aspect. And I think what you what I've seen with so many of our high performers is they've got the humility to know when they've gone outside their range of expertise and they immediately take that beginner's mindset of what can you teach me? What, what do I need to learn? What do I not know? So that they can take that on board and, and apply it. That is so important. I, had, I hadn't thought about that before. Go on. Okay, two questions before we finish. <laughs> Maybe three, but two definitely. Okay, um, what's the best advice you've ever received from a podcast oh, guest? Wow, okay. Um, I'm going to go back to see a Khaleesi. And, <laughs> and um, he was the first guest we had that said something that really resonated and reverberated through me where he just said, he doesn't compromise on being kind. He said, I don't compromise on being kind to anybody. Now, bear in mind, this is a guy that his nickname is The Bear to give you an idea of how physically imposing he is. And yet he was a man there preaching kindness and understanding and empathy. And I remember like, that's something that I've had to learn the hard way of uh, starting to do that, but it really sort of reinforced a message to me that it's like, don't compromise on this stuff of just be a decent person, be kind, do what you can to make a difference to people. And to hear him saying it from his position of being, the world champion, the captain of the world champions, I felt was really quite profound. Really profound. In that moment hearing that must have must have meant when you think about it, it just must have meant something because it had been delivered. It probably yeah, would well, have been delivered well, well, the origins of, well, well, of why we it? got him on, I'll tell you, it's, it's a bit of a funny story, but a friend of mine called Tom worked down at the Stormers in Cape Town with him. And me and Tom sort of trade messages or we'll share ideas or things like that. And Tom had said to me a couple of years ago, he said, you need to get Sia onto the podcast. So I came back and said, why? Like, why do you, apart from that he's a great rugby player, why do you think his story would resonate? And he said, he's the best hugger I've ever met in my life. So I texted him, sorry, explain what you mean. And he said, he gives the best hugs out of anybody you'll ever meet. So I said, so I phoned him up and I said to him, this is a, such an intriguing response, Tom. Tell me what you mean. And he said, well, he said, this guy just gives these beautiful, big, warm bear hugs. And he said, but the thing, the reason I say it is, he says, everybody gets it. So if you're the cleaner in the training ground at the Stormers, you get the same bear hug that the president of South Africa gets when he turns up to meet him. He said, he doesn't discriminate. Everybody gets treated with this warmth, this decency. And this kindness. So when he told me this, I thought this is intriguing. And then when we spoke to him, and like you say, he was soft and he was gentle. And yet when he delivers it, I don't compromise on kindness. 
in any situation, if I can't be kind, I, I remove myself from the environment. Went, that is fantastic because I think sometimes this, this idea of toxic masculinity or, th- you know, even the phrases of having to front up or assuming mm. that life is about being on the front foot or bombastic or aggressive, hearing somebody like him preach that different alternative way to me was, uh, was, was fabulous. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Last one. This is not, this is not my question. This is actually somebody in my office has asked this question. It's been a heavy couple of years with the pandemic, various world events, and now the war in Ukraine, given your expertise and knowledge within the field of sports psychology, are there any specific coping strategies you'd recommend, which could help the current climate feel more manageable? I, I, I mean, it's a brilliant question. I think what I would do there is I'd, I'd quote um, Jeff Bezos that Jeff Bezos was once asked the question of what do you think is the technology that's going to disrupt the world in the next 10 years? And he said, isn't it far more helpful to say what's going to stay the same in the next 10 years rather than what's going to change? And the reason I'd quote that in answer to the question is rather than say, all the things that have gone on. So has the world changed this hybrid way of working, the war and the disruption that's going, we can look at all that and we can feel a panic, uh, a sense of ambiguity or uncertainty. But instead I'd say, let's have a look at what's not going to change regardless of all these factors. And what we know is there's effectively three things that all of us as human beings need to be able to thrive wherever we are or do what we're doing. The first thing is we need to have a sense of belonging. We need to feel a sense of community with other people. We need to surround ourselves with people that we enjoy, that light us up and that make a difference to us. So the biggest predictor of mental health issues such as depression is loneliness when we feel disconnected or isolated. So we need to tap into this idea of make sure you're surrounding yourself with people that 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 you want to belong to. The second one is we need to have a sense of uh, value we need to feel that we're, that we're doing what we're good at, that we can find a way of playing to our strengths, that exercising our passions, showing off what we're good at. Because that, again, it speaks to a sense of competence, um, but it's more than competence. It's about doing things that we love. And then the third one is we need to have a sense of control. We need to focus on the stuff that we can influence. So this is all... These three areas, if people listen to this, are interested in exploring it. They come from a um, research of two guys called Edward DC and Richard Ryan, and it's called the self-determination theory, that when these three areas of control, belonging, and value are being addressed, we give ourselves the best chance of being the best version that we are. And regardless of what's going on in the world or what has gone on, those three factors, we're not going to evolve fast enough that those three factors are ever going to become redundant. So I'd encourage that anyone listening to this, see how you can shape and structure a life for yourself that gives you a sense of belonging with the people that matter, a chance to do the things that you love doing and the control and the experience of getting to exercise your own free will and do it where and when suits you. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And one last comment and question. I would do my podcast for free. I love it so much that 
I, if, if my job full time was to interview a couple of people every day a week, five days a week, and learn about people's stories, backgrounds, histories, why they think the way they think, etc. Definitely. Do you have and the I, same passion for it? Rather as I? than just say that and think that that's an easy remark to make because I should do it, um, I, I did that. I was doing this stuff for free uh, for a long time, so it's not just somebody saying it and not having to back it up. Um, when I wrote my first book, for example, I wrote a book called Liquid Thinking. Um, and I wrote it when I was doing that job <laughs> in the corporate world. I, I never wrote a book to be published. I wrote it for the guys in a factory that I'd worked with just outside of Liverpool and helped them turn it around. So I wrote the book in my own time for free. I published it myself because it was only ever for them. I paid for it myself and I gave it away to all of them. And then I wrote my second book for free and then I wrote my third book and I kept just self-publishing it and giving it away to people that I liked and admired. So I did that for the first six years of uh, my, uh, of I wouldn't describe it as a career, but of the books that I did uh, in terms of the writing. And I did it just because I loved doing it, that I didn't, I can't, like people had asked me about TV shows and they'd say, have you seen that show? I'd say, no, sorry, the last six years I've spent my head on my, my spare time immersed in, researching or trying to write the next book so it, it it really was a passion that I've been lucky enough to be able to make into um a living um and yeah I'm absolutely in the same place as you Spencer I just feel uh, an immense amount of privilege to be able to do what I do and with the podcast and to meet yourself and to just sit and chat with you um just I just feel so incredibly lucky so yes I would do it for free because I have done it for free it's been a real pleasure to get to meet you and also i mean thank you for the time that you put into us into sort of researching and asking such smart incisive and really thought-provoking questions thank you no no problem at all (laughs) ladies and gentlemen damien hughes Well, what a fantastic guest Damien was. I mean, I've just learned so much in this time we've spent with each other, and I'm sure that you've taken some great takeaways from it too. From his humble beginnings, the fact that he didn't really fit academically to go on and achieve the success he's achieved in the world of psychology and high performance is really something quite remarkable. Damien is a a true gentleman, kind and giving with his time, and that's something that you can't say for everybody. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to him today, and I hope that you got some great takeaways from the show too. If you're listening to this on iTunes, please, please, please leave us a five-star rating. You've no idea how much that means to me. And if you're listening to it on any other podcasting platform, please show us some love, give us some feedback, give us a follow, whatever it takes so that we can get more people to benefit from listening to this show. 